Welcome to On The Go, a podcast on the future of mobility powered by Traffy. Tuning into On The Go, you will meet some of the most brilliant minds in mobility and we will take you way behind the scenes of the industry. My name is Sigrid Dahlbeck-Hevsky, I'm the Global Head of Communications at Traffy and I will be your host. Let's go. In the first episode of On The Go, we will be picking the brains of Michel Halbherr. Michael has held several leading roles in the European tech industry and amongst others been the CEO of Hair Technologies and part of Nokia's leadership team. After spending more than 30 years in the technology industry, Michael now works as an investor, active board member and advisor to young, aspiring tech companies, not to mention being the chairman of Traffy. Michael, thanks for joining On The Go. How did you get here today? Yes, I usually take my motorbike. I have a Harley Davidson, but today I decided to take my dog, so I actually took the car. And why is <laughs> that's not the most environmental friendly option these days? The the motorbike isn't either. No, I mean, I'm joking. I usually take in Berlin public transit because it's very very effective. But um, today I ran a bit late, and the dog feels more comfortable in the car. This podcast is about the future of mobility. And one of the key trends in the industry that people like to talk about these days is autonomous vehicles and fleets. However, you've said that there are that these types of fleets are just one part of the bigger picture. Could you maybe outline what that larger picture would look like? Yes, let's let me try this. So when we look at mobility in general, we tend to have a very Western perspective. We basically think about economies where people, you know, earn anywhere between thirty thousand up to one hundred thousand, um, you know, dollars or euros per year. But we have to look at the rest of the world, and we have to, you know, then acknowledge that there will be cities of twenty, thirty, forty, fifty million people, or even more, uh, in the forthcoming future. If you look at, um, you know, the surrounding areas and. Um, to solve mobility in these ever denser cities, we need a new form of mass mobility. So I don't think that you know individual uh, one two people per car mobility will actually be um, the, the let me say the center of mobility in the future. And again, it's very different when you compare Lagos um, to um, a Beijing, Shanghai, and maybe Silicon Valley or um, a Berlin environment. So I believe it's going to be a spectrum of mobility services, of which I think the mass transit, and I'll come to that in a bit more detail in a second, and individual are, um, you know, the way we see today with the cars, which then will become autonomous fleets, tend to be, I would say, the two corners that then get surrounded with all kinds of, um, you know, forms of micromobility. So first point, you know, we're not going to see mass mobility disappear in any way. I think it will... um, become different, um, might even be served by cars, but it, it will be an incrementally, an I- incredibly important uh, part of the mobility infrastructure in the future. Second, you know, we will travel um, using multiple forms of mobility at the same time. So for us, it's very, very important to switch from one form of the mobility to the other. I call it, you know, like fluid or take the tr- take the friction out of mobility. So we shouldn't have to deal with, you know, many apps, many billing and payment systems. It should actually be almost seamless. It's, um, you know, something you pay by actually having a, a smartwatch or another form of token. You enter the system and you basically, um, you know, pay as you go. Some countries are already experimenting with forms of payment which will give you the best possible, um, you know, um, let me say, ticket structure at the end of the month based on how you traveled. 
So you don't even have to decide, you know, how do I best travel at the end of the month? They will tell you, hey, look, if you had had these types of tickets, it would have been the cheapest. So basically, um, a new forms of, um, of, of the way we pay for these systems. Then, you know, the next is when you look at mobility in general, we really had this very, very strong bifurcation of mass transit, whether it's, um, you know, the, the subway system, the tram system or the train system outside of the city. And we had the cars in the city. What we call unbundling mobility is um, trying to create the more a richer spectrum of mobility choices. And we see it with, you know, scooters and, and, and all forms of mobility, also more walking. Also, um, you know, the bicycle is clearly coming back, whether it's a bicycle or it's an e-bike. So I would say the micromobility will grow and play an incredible, an increasingly important role. And you could argue that between one to two kilometers, people will walk. Between, you know, two kilometers and three and four, they will maybe choose micromobility. And then um, they will move to um, either being autonomous cars or cars or go to public transit. So it's going to be a more, let me say, complex decisions, but it's basically being decided based on how far you want to go. In the past, people usually didn't hesitate and just take the car, mm. right? So I think in the future, this will definitely change. We can see it in Berlin, but I think it's a general trend is that what I call zero emission mobility. We need to move to a world where uh, mobility basically becomes emission-free. It is a requirement for the cleanliness and the livability of our cities. And I think it's very, very important when we look at, you know, all the climate issues that we're having in the world. And I think the pressure from a regulatory perspective for going up um, very, very considerably over the next uh, 10 years. We can see it already in Berlin where people are suing the city and the city then has to close down certain roads for certain types of cars. Of course, that is not a solution because people will just take out the streets. We need to change the pool of mobility, um, let me say resources to become zero emission. And I want to be clear that this is not just the car being guilty because if you generate the energy for, you know, the public transit or the train system, but you get it from a coal, um, you know, power plant, then that's not zero emission either. So I think we need to look at this in a, let me call it non-hysterical and, and very calm way. And how do we get that from status quo to zero emission mobility? Yes, I think the past has shown that companies will not do that without the right form of regulation. That's why, and we'll come to that, I guess, a little bit later as well, the role of the city will have to increase and the role of the state or basically norms in general. And that's what's happening now in Germany with all the lawsuits happening on a city level, even on a street by street um, level is basically reality is catching up with politics and politics and industry not having been uh, enough forward-looking in actually hitting those emission standards. So I think for me, it's a regulatory issue. It's basically we as a society want to get there. And then that's a new uh, a new framework within it, which uh, the, the companies have to build the right solutions. Do you see any cities that are in the forefront of this at the moment, if you compare to Berlin or other German cities? Yes, I'd, you know, you have to be able to afford zero emission, right? So when we look at Germany, to actually go to zero emission, you either have to kind of... Uh, change the current cars, which I think is not a feasible strategy, or you have to significantly replace the pools of cars now, which costs money, 
right? That's why in the mobility world, things cannot change as fast as people want it to change because you have billions of dollars invested in the assets, whether it's privately or the state, and those cannot change you know, radically from one year to the other because you just can't afford that. So it's a bit of an affordability question. And, you know, we have the trend in the world today that, um, you know, the, maybe the rich nations also have the obligation to go first. So when I look at the cities in Europe, I would definitely see Copenhagen, Zurich, um, Vienna, uh, but also London um, being at the forefront of really thinking from the future back what kind of a mobility hierarchy or logic they want to have in their cities. And some of them are going to be very radical that by 2030, no more individual kind of um, traffic within the inner city or what they call congestion zones today. Mm -hmm. That's quite a few European cities that you mentioned that. Do you think that the American ones are still in the backtrack of this development or do you see some of them also stepping up? Yeah, I think the American cities are not as characteristically similar than other Europeans. If we take like New York, has about 60% of American public transit. And when you look today, I think very few people take a private car when they drive around in New York. So you either take the underground system, the subway system, which could be significantly improved, but is a very amazing system nonetheless. And then, of course, um, you know, above the ground, you do have um, the taxis, and now you have Uber, which essentially fleets of cars that are being shared and highly amortized um, between the people. And I guess then micromobility is going to grow the same way. But then you have a city like Los Angeles, which is very different. So basically, in Los Angeles, all happens by car because the city is so widespread and has also, um, you know, not built um, the public transit infrastructure over the last 100 years. They used to have one. Most people can't remember until they sold it to, I think, uh, the, the car companies, which then closed it down. Um, they have to rebuild public transit, definitely to complement in certain areas. They do that, uh, the car, but it's a very different setup and much more car dependent than is, for example, New York. Then you have some places like San Francisco, which which I think will be more similar than European cities. But when it comes to autonomous driving, um, you will see those um, systems deployed in the U.S. first. It's also because topologically the cities are easier. It's definitely a lot easier to build an autonomous car for a grid-based street system that you have in, let's say, Phoenix or in many places of Los Angeles than doing it for a very complex you know, city where the structures have grown out of medieval uh, times, whether it's London or Think about the worst case, um, uh, Lisbon, which is a beautiful city. But to do autonomous driving in those narrow canyons and, and windy roads is going to be a lot more difficult. So I believe autonomous fleets of cars will come in the U.S. first, two to three years later so in European cities. And then, um, of course, they will be deployed widely. If we take one step back and look into some of the trends that you listed mm -hmm. in terms of mobility, mobility being fluid, um, seamless, easy to access, something that can be systematically organized. What various challenges do we need to solve in order to get there? If you look at mobility today, you essentially put mobility resources on the street and then they share a physical infrastructure, which is ruled by, in Germany, called the Straßenverkehrsordnungs by laws, right? But the physical infrastructure doesn't have, you know, a digital twin, in that sense, we need to build a digital twin of the physical infrastructure on which we know where the resources are, where you know congestion is building up, where traffic is building up. Otherwise, we cannot systematically manage the physical infrastructure. 
So to have an impact from a systematic perspective on the physical infrastructure, we do need what people call a digital twin, which means we have to make a super precise map of reality. And then we need to basically track the cars and put them into one system because you can't systematically organize a system if you don't have a digital infrastructure, which basically completes the entire system on a digital platform. Speaking about platforms, yes. anyone who has seen you speak on stage lately or who might see you on Spiegel's Futura conference this November has probably heard you talking about the three platforms of mobility. Mm -hmm. Could you please take a second to describe these platforms, what they mean for the ecosystem of transportation and how they will affect us, the people? Yes. So all the trends that I listed before and all the consequences, whether it's being, you know, dynamic traffic management, dynamic pricing and many, many other, you know, digital challenges we face, we need to somehow structure them. So we need to structure, like, how do we see the industry? So this is more like a top-down approach to provide a model by which we can structure the conversation that we need to have between the different constituents. Usually doing that, you build a value chain, you know, from the beginning of the resources to the end product. But what I thought is more applicable to that particular instance is to use the three distinct perspectives we're going to have on a mobility ecosystem of the future. So one perspective is clear. It's the mobility consumer perspective, so there will be a platform that serves the mobility consumer and will solve for him, you know, choosing, routing, payment and everything so that basically mobility becomes as frictionless as possible. So that's what I call the consumer perspective or the consumer platform. And you can see that in action actually with the Trophy solution in Vilnius. The second one is a platform that builds around fleets of mobility resources. So let's say a company deploying scooters, another company deploying an autonomous fleet, a third company, um, new forms of public transit uh, based on shared buses that uh, you know drive um, dynamically along uh, fixed lines need to be managed as fleets. So I think the need for doing fleet level management, whether it's collecting the bicycles, moving into a different place, knowing where things are, have to be built. Back to my example in New York. Today, the capacity of the subway system in New York could be 3 x by actually having a more dynamic platform managing the train. So one train could leave a station before the other train has arrived at the next station. Today, they can't do that because they don't have visibility within the train stations. So we need to build that fleet-level platform. So I call them the transport platforms. And they usually will become fleet-level and will be organized on a fleet level. And then the third, which is the one that people think the least about, is a platform that is what I call the city platform. So today the city literally builds the streets and puts up um, you know, the restrictions and tells us how to drive on it. But in the future, when we have no more fossil burning cars, how do we pay for the streets? Today, about 80% of what we pay for, for gas is actually used for taxes, and those taxes will pay for the city. So how do we pay for infrastructure? Right? So we need to have new taxation systems. So you have, uh, for example, cities like Singapore, that they will say you pay based on the time of the day, uh, based on how much weight or people are in the car and what you're doing. So kind of the wheel pressure, which then is a form of uh, how heavily you're going to use the, the road. So if you want to deliver a book between 7 and 9 o'clock in the morning during rush hour, you pay a lot more money than doing the same thing two o'clock in the morning. So it is about more efficiently and more effectively, and we used the word before, systematically use the available resources because 
we will not get more streets. We can go underground or maybe in the third dimension, which is not economically feasible today. Otherwise, we just have to basically, on the 2D plane we have on, on the city, we have to make everything more efficient. So I would say the city platform will become important from a pricing taxation perspective, from a routing perspective, and from a general management perspective. So cities will ultimately give out licenses of how many fleets of a certain type of car can run in the city, like to give out taxi licenses today. So these are the three platforms. Do you think the same type of augmentation line transcend from commercial businesses, as in book deliveries, yeah. to private individuals in terms of commuters, for example? Mm -hmm. Well, we have today, we have um, um, quite a split system when it comes to mobility. As mentioned before, we have mass transit on one side and then we have the car-based individual mobility on the other. And we have, in a different dimension, we have the spectrum between uh, private mobility and commercial mobility. And there again, the resources are split. And by um, being more flexible and dynamic in assembling the resources and then disassembling them again when they need in a different way could lead to economic improvements, as an example. Between seven and nine, or again, between four and six, we have rush hours, which means masses of people have to move around the city. This is not a good time to do commercial delivery. But today we live in a world where people work at the same time. So also the people who do commercial delivery want to work normal working hours. But we need to see that as a society, we need to find different solutions. So some companies look into concepts they call platooning, where they take multiple mobility, let me say cars, and then basically platoon them together into a bigger entity. And that is being used to transport people in rush hours. But then after rush hour, the platoon is disassembled and the individual um, you know, mobility resources then do packet delivery. Or we do it in the morning, in the middle of the night. Of course, there's a question of noise, but as we go electric, noise will decrease. So I think there's a lot of optimizations that we can apply to use the infrastructure of mobility resources more flexibly and more dynamically. That means, however, we have to redesign it. And an example of, of economics you can see actually in Uber. Uber ultimately, from a, from a service perspective, is, is doing the very same thing as a taxi service. It is just more flexible in bringing cars online in peak hours and releasing them without having the capital on the balance sheet. So the guy who drives his Prius, he just goes home after six o'clock and his car is not on the balance sheet of the taxi company. And that's why it's sufficient. But at the end of the day, that, um, that is a way we have to, we have to resolve um, you know, the economic use of mobility. We have touched upon dynamic pricing a little bit. Mm -hmm. What about dynamic routing? At the moment, most public transport is quite fixed, whereas people are traveling very fluidly mm -hmm. and personalizing their travels more than in any decade before. How can public transport or public transit answer to these demands? Yeah, so I think when it comes to, to routing, when you are sitting in an autonomous vehicle, um, you will know even less how you go from A to B. Most people today uh, actually use a navigation system when going from A to B, so they're not even capable anymore to driving around the city without the aid of a navigation system. So to use an analogy, moving around the city will become much more like taking a lift an elevator. You just basically say where you want to go when you go there. In public transit, there are beautiful examples of that reduction. A public transit map only shows you two things, you know, uh, how to get to a place, count the stations, and know where to change. 
and in the future, using mobility resources that drive autonomously will be very similar. So users will not care how it drives. And that means um, the system itself can then systematically improve it. So if you know that Leipziger Straße in Berlin is congested, you're not going to send more cars in that way. So it's not about knowing traffic and having a better understanding of arrival times. It is actually traffic avoidance. So it's saying, how do I get the most out of a city in terms of the physical resources available. Again, the digital twin that I mentioned before. One example um, that a company in the U.S. is working on, RideOS, which um, we talk quite a bit. These are people who have um, have worked for Uber before. So they look into problems. What if we have 5,000 cars as part of an autonomous fleet? And you and I want to go somewhere. Which of those 5,000 cars is the best car for us to go there? Uh, to answer that question, they have to kind of look at all 5,000 cars, right? They kind of just pick one, which is maybe furthest away. So you're going to pick the one that is, um, you know, the best at the current situation to get you from A to B. Somebody who already sits in the car maybe has a little bit of a long way, but not much. So essentially, it's no longer enough to have one routing algorithm executed for that question. You maybe have to execute a 1,000 routing algorithms. So you can see there's a lot of um, work to be done on, on how to make uh, best use of the physical resource. And who will own it? Will we see a battle between cities and providers? Or will the cities take the steering wheel here? Maybe that's my Swiss upbringing. I think cities should set regulation and boundary conditions, but um, the state is not an entrepreneur. And the state, you know, might have infrastructure, but they should have other people run the infrastructure. So we see this actually happening more and more when you, um, you know, talk to the guys at Siemens. In Asia, they don't sell uh, trains and tracks anymore. They run lines for the actual owners of the transit service. And they're being paid based on how of, um, how accurately they arrive and, and how many trains possibly don't run, which in their case is very, very little. So basically, it's the quality of the infrastructure that they sell to the actual service owner. And and I think that's a great model because I think people should do what they're best. I don't think that the city will be better at managing um, an infrastructure than, than an expert. But of course, uh, the city needs to set boundary conditions that these companies can live in. To give you a bit more general answer, I think whenever you have a world that changes so dramatically as it does now. And again, let's be clear, the, the trains were invented 150 years ago. The public transit system, as we know today, was invented maybe 100 years ago. And the cars um, about, you know, 120 years or whatever you, you take as the first incidence. We are talking about an industry that has basically um, worked in its current track for a long time. And it's a bit like meteor hitting planet Earth And as we all know, the dinosaurs died out, but it created a lot of niches for new species, which then became less as they fought um, for survival. And I would say I don't see quite as dramatically that all car OEMs will disappear. So there's a lot of work that goes into building a car, and even electric car is 80, 85% a normal car. So I think you will see some car companies or OEMs have trouble, while others will go with transition. So all dinosaurs won't die. No, all dinosaurs won't die. And, and I think we always have to be careful of, of dramatic analogies. But it is not clear anymore how we will perceive them. Because today, the brand is very important, right? For people, the status symbol is owning a car. For most people in like countries like China, which were economically growing in the 80s and the 90s, people said, why don't you even 
about the not selling cars, move to the next generation of infrastructure. And the state said, no, we can't do that. For people, owning a car is part of getting rich, so we have to let them live through that experience. But when you ride in a, uh, let me say, in an autonomous vehicle, the brand becomes much less important to you. I mean, do you care about the brand of the airplane that you're taking? It's uh, something you think it works, um, it's tested, uh, you know, it follows, um, you know, a maintenance schedule, but you don't really care whether you're flying an Airbus or a Boeing or an Amber Air jet. I mean, you don't. And I think this would be very similar. And that will be a big challenge for those companies because they invest in the brand, um, into their distribution. So I think, uh, you know, uh, running a car company clearly is a very interesting um, endeavor. And then you have the, the other guys who kind of f- could be complementary, but at the moment, you know, you never know until you see how you want to um, work together, whether you are competing or uh, whether you can actually work together are the new mobility providers. It's the Lyfts and the Ubers and the DDs of this world which come in and say, oh, we are cool. We just have a digital platform and we don't own any assets. But it's very clear in their strategies that they will go into owning assets themselves. So they will run large-scale mobility services, very similar how operators run large-scale mobile networks. You can't run a mobile network without owning a license, and you can't run a mobile network without paying for a mobile infrastructure. So I would say the same is going to be true for the new mobility providers. They will have a license. Cities will give them a license, and they will have to comply with the rules, insurance, and everything. They may even have to pay for the retirement for the driver, which they don't do today. And at the same time, they need to invest into infrastructure. Now, can OEMs become mobility providers, or uh, will mobility providers, new ones, build cars? At the moment, everything is open, and they will fight it out. But I think ultimately, you will see companies, and some of them are the current OEMs, build mobility infrastructure in a wide-label fashion that then they will license as a, as a service with quality standards to the actual mobility service providers, which will then have the asset on their balance sheet. And so I would say we see so many you know permutations of this in so many different city setups that it's just going to be a fantastic time. And why do you see micromobility in that equation? Because if we look at it today, it is seen rather as a complement to other forms of mobility like ride hailing, public transport, etc. It's always referred to as last mile or first mile. Do you see that changing in the future or will we continue to view micromobility as a complement or a substitution as it is not in a sense mass transit? Yeah, so I think the micromobility resources or solutions definitely have a future and I will come to the reason why in a second. And they do complement the individual mobility as we know it today and mass mobility, which by themselves will become more fluid, right? So when you look at um, at the Volkswagen Cedric system, you ask yourself, is this now mass mobility or is this individual mobility? Can you explain the Cedric system for the people that... Yeah, the Cedric system is a system of autonomous vehicles. I think four to eight people can sit in a car and they basically drive around the city. You press a button and Cedric will arrive and you get in and maybe other people are already in there. So it's almost like smaller buses that don't drive on fixed routes. They actually go and uh, drive a lot more flexibly. But you you would ask yourself, is this now a public infrastructure or private, right? But definitely be built by a company that, um, you know, stands for building cars. Now, when it comes to micromobility, I would say in general, the user doesn't want to go through a complex, um, you know, mobility decision to go, um, you know, like two or three kilometers, it's just great if there is a scooter around or a kickboard or something and you can just take it. And I think it's also lots of fun. It also goes with um, 
the people's intent to also live healthier. I know many people who say, hey, I'm fine to take the bicycle for three to four kilometers. And these things are um, um, a lot of fun and then very easy. You jump on it and you drop it, but they have to be integrated into a bigger system, right? So I'm not um, going through a complex app or transaction to do that because the faster I need to use something and the quicker, the more seamless uh, you know, access has to be and connectivity and seamless platforms, consumer platforms, like I talked before, are essential. Mm-hmm. Lyft now, with the help of Traffi now, you know, um, offers public transit. And they use our platform to complement their platform. So what we're doing at Traffi is simply saying, what are the modules needed by those three different perspectives? Figuring out what are the right modules for the future platform. And that's why we have decided to work with all three players that I just mentioned before to actually be the fastest in learning what are the components for this platform. Mm-hmm. I always use um, um, the mobile world. You will have at the end of the day two or three you know, competing providers like you have in Germany today. You know, have Vodafone and you have Deutsche Telekom and have a few smaller ones. And they will provide you all forms of mobility. And who will that be for mobility? Yeah, as, uh, as I said, uh, there are three, three contenders, although I, I think um, one of them is clearly the new mobility providers, right? That's what they do. They're raising tens of billions of dollars to be exactly that. Then you have the car OEMs, which you know, could either um, be a white-level supplier to them, but also run their own mobility services, which they all try, particularly the branded players. And then the third, let me not call it the city, it is the former mass transit companies, right? So you have, you know, the mass transit companies and the old mobility and the new mobility providers. I think they're going to be the consolidator because they have the biggest assets, right? These are $100 billion, $200 billion company, while the micromobility companies are much smaller. So biggest naturally, switch. they're being gobbled up. And how will they win? In what sense? Win their consumer journey. Take an analogy. Today, most people book when they want to fly directly on the side of the airplane company. In the early days, those companies did not know how to make a booking system for consumers. I think today, whether it's uh, you know Lufthansa or Swiss or whoever or EasyJet, you just go straight to their website and you book. Yeah, there are aggregators, and sometimes it's um, interesting to look at the choices in the aggregators. But um, I think the problems of creating great consumer-facing uh, services, ultimately, they will learn or they will buy it. But it's um, very unlikely that a small company will control Uh, or become a gateway between the end consumer and companies spending tens of billions on mobility infrastructure, they will ultimately buy the others. It's a natural way how industry evolves, is that the bigger players with the capital buy the innovation to build end-to-end products. If we look at the discussion of connected mobility, including micromobility, mm-hmm. we see a lot of the talk being centered around the city center. What about the suburban areas? How do we connect them to cities? How do we make them more accessible? Yeah, so the, the the planning of the city of the future is a big topic. And I mean, you can see in Germany, and I'm sure it's anywhere else in the world, more and more and more people move to the cities. Right? Sometimes, I mean, we, we can't remember how dramatic that migration has been. I mean, in, in most countries, you know, um, take Finland as an example, which I just know um, uh, from the past very well, Uh, 80% of people lived in the countryside after the Second World War. Today, 80% of the people live in the city. Um, China, I think about four or five years ago, um, went over the 50% mark that now more people live in the cities 
than they live in the countryside. And that trend is accelerating because in the city you earn well. Um, usually people are healthier, people are better educated. So the city is a huge attraction. And um, some later developing nations, particularly in, in Latin America, um, I think everybody lives um, in the city almost. I, mean, I always make a joke when you look at the football league in Argentina, I think all the teams in that football league are in Buenos Aires, with maybe one exception. <laughs> so you can see that the cities become more and more important. And so, But do... do make this work, we have to make him denser or we have to figure a way uh, to get the surrounding countryside integrated into the city. You know, I, I'm now at an age where I would actually love to move further out. And Switzerland has a project or had this project many years ago. They called it Downtown Switzerland. So they said, what would happen if Switzerland gets integrated into a bigger European system? How does this place um, keep its identity? And the idea was to say, we just declare the entire a country as one urban area, right? The same way in the Netherlands, you know, Rotterdam, um, you know, Amsterdam, Utrecht, when you look at this area, what if you take all of those four or five cities you have up there and declare it one urban environment, you have a very different planning. That's why competition for the most livable places is going to be a competition between urban environments. And so we need to have solutions. It could be Hyperloop type of systems and others that connect you know, the surrounding countryside to the urban area because we cannot just move all the people into the city and go into the, um, the third dimension. It's also from a from a pricing perspective, from a living perspective, getting more and more expensive, even though it is very effective in many ways. So for me, we cannot just look at this from an urban perspective, but it's the starting point. And when do you see this happening? Is there a timeline for this? I think it's happening. Again, the, it's always a question of affordability, right? I mean, the Swiss just built a tunnel connecting the Italian-speaking part of Switzerland to the rest of the country. And that tunnel is a 20-year project that costs 16 billion Swiss francs. But now you can essentially uh, commute between the Italian-speaking part and Zurich on a daily basis because it's so fast. That's huge investments, and we have to have similar investments. You have some, let's say Stuttgart is building a new train station, putting it all underground. There's new land being given back, back to the city. So the whole commute behavior, that's what I'm saying, public um, transit, mass mobility that feeds out and then again moves to micromobility once you reach the end of the feeder stations are super important. Uh, cities like Seoul, they build the public transit system the way they want the city to grow. They don't do it like we do, that uh, they have a city now, they need a public transit. They deliberately started to connect certain parts to the city so that they would become attractive. They build bridges from those parts and then leading to the airport, which would take hours, suddenly it takes 20 minutes, and that totally reshapes the city. Hmm. Coming back a little bit to the platforms that you mentioned, we have a consumer platform, we have a city or old public transportation platform, And we have new mobility OEM platform in a sense. Mm -hmm. So producers, providers and users, mm -hmm. consumers. We know already who will feed them with vehicles, with transport options, who will operate it. Yeah, so I think when you look at the three platforms, that's an idealistic view, which tries to say there's three very different perspectives. So the city has a very different perspective um, than the people providing the mobility or the transport services than the user. And the model is um, to help understanding the trade-offs between. So to do, for example, 
dynamic pricing, um, the city platform kind of needs to interact with both the consumer platform and the transport platform because um, it has to tell the user how much does it cost right now. And that might be dynamic based on the traffic situation. It also has to instruct the mobility, the transport provider, so it drives the right way to lower traffic and to provide the right answer when it comes to how much you're willing to pay. I think these three platforms are essentially growing together. Like so each, they will merge. I would just say there's different perspectives that will be approached, right? I mean, I was, you know, as an example, again, when you run a company, right, and you have software for running a company, of one part runs the automation of how you interact with your customers, the Salesforce management. Then you have the logistics systems. Then you have, um, you know, the factory production systems. You have also systems in R&D. And of course, they talk to each other because it's at the end of the day, it's still one organism or one organization. And I think it will be the same here. And I would say that these three platforms and the people operating them grow out of the stakeholders. So take Traffy. We come from a consumer, uh, you know, centric perspective, and we link in, um, you know, the platforms, uh, whether it's an Uber or Lyft uh, or anyone else, a micro mobility company that that runs mobility resources, and we provide. Uh, maybe dashboards at the beginning and other elements for the city to start interacting with the other two platforms. Because as I said, I think the city-level platform is the one that's least conceptually developed right now. And so there could be companies providing the software for other companies to run those mobility services. So it's a little bit like AWS. If you want to run a big business today, you don't go anymore into building hosting centers. You can get computation, communication, and storage by actually, you know, licensing the right services of an AWS type of system. And I think they will have the same thing when it comes to operating these platforms. It has to be an integrated platform because only then can you make the right choices between them. But this will take time and it will grow over many, many years. And then you will have multiple presidia. As I said, there will be two, three players, but they will have integrated platforms across all the three elements. Mm -hmm. Autonomous vehicles is a huge trend at the moment, not only to produce, to develop, but also to talk about. When do you think that people will trust being driven by autonomous vehicles? <laughs> would you would you be comfortable uh, being driven by an AV car? Depends. I'm fine if it drives, you know, moderate speed. In What's a, moderate for I you? Know, <laughs> you know, yeah, for me, moderate is 30, 40, right? Um, I wouldn't trust an autonomous system on a German highway where people go anywhere between 100 and 250. But it comes back to the, the question of how do people approach the autonomous driving? You take um, the current product, which is a car that can drive anywhere, right? And say, let me make that car autonomous. I think that's a bit the wrong approach because you're trying to solve the whole problem at once. If you said... Oh, I want to have an autonomous system in an inner city of Zurich that drives 25 to 35 kilometers an hour, and most of that inner city is free of other forms of traffic. Then you create a much simpler question, and then you have a solution that you can trust quicker. So I think we still are in a phase where everybody's claiming to have an autonomous system and saying, oh, we're driving 70, 80% autonomously, which means they're driving 70, 80% on, on highways. Um, but do really... Um, build those systems, I think we just need to constrain the problems a little bit. And I would definitely be fine with an autonomous system in an inner city that is well-structured. And I think we will see this in the next two to three years. If we take one step back and 
look a little bit to the historical picture that you referred to before, that we had trains and cars entering the market around 150 to 100 years ago. Why do we see micromobility forming or taking place now or just a few years ago? Mm. That gap is pretty big. Why has it been so slow? It's technology, right? I mean, today when you look at um, the micromobility, I think um, it's it's the affordability of um, the electrical engines, I think, is something that I think the industry just has slept on. And I think... Um, when, you know, I always loved the fact that Tesla is now investing into electric cars because it's galvanizing an industry. I like the fact that um, Google at one point went crazy and started to invest into autonomous cars because we adhere knew immediately that the industry will need a new, significantly more precise map, right? And so it's the same here. I think the connectivity is critical, right? I mean, you want to basically lock and unlock and use those resources. So you need to have connected, um, you know, mobility device. And I think that's now, you know, in the in the realm of what we call the Internet of Things is becoming affordable and, and programmable. Uh, and at the same time, I think um, those devices become um, um, technically capable. But I would say one other point is important. When you look at moments when a new technology comes and you know we always think everything is new but when you really go back you know the 150 years to the middle of the 19th century when people were building trains and you can take the life of many people um, there were no trains and when they turned like 40s you know this the country was basically plastered with train tracks so it goes very fast at one point when a technology becomes right in terms of you know, being cost-effective to solve a problem. And then you suddenly have a herd movement of massive amounts of capital flow in, of which many will lose the money, right? So when we go uh, back to the, the analogy of the trains in the 19th century, many, many lost lost a lot of money by having built trains. So do you see this the same pattern for micromobility today? Or no, absolutely. is it five years away? <laughs> no, absolutely. No, the, the, this is the beauty of competition, right? The beauty of competition is that you, you money flows in because people feel that there's a huge opportunity and then you can build something and there's a herd movement. Nobody wants to be left behind, right? Um, you could, you know, I mean, I've been there, right? You say things that people just don't believe. And in 2002 and three and four, we said, ah, oh, one day there's going to be a GPS in every phone and every phone is going to have a map. People laughed at us, right? And then six years later came the first smartphones for GPS. And today, if you tell young kids the phone doesn't have a GPS, they wouldn't even know what you're talking about. So I think... Uh, these things usually go very, very fast and um, because the capital moves in. There's a beautiful picture of New York uh, in one year and you see on the street only cars and you see, I think, one horse carriage. And the year earlier, you had the inverse. You saw only horse carriages and one actual car. So things can go very fast. So I do believe we're in a fantastic uh, moment in the history of mobility because um, the, the amount of money... Um, the, the intelligence of companies. I mean, Silicon Valley. You, you know, ten years. If you talk there about mobility, they said this, this is not what we do, right? Do you think that um, New York's horse carriage is your private car? That's what people say. I said I think the private car is going to turn into a shared resource. And in that sense, you're right. And when, you know, some people ask me, where are we going to drive our Porsche car in 2030? I said, on a racetrack. <laughs> Just like with horses today. That's correct. Michael, thank you so much for coming. It was a pleasure to have you here. 
Before we finish off for today, I have one last question. Mm-hmm. Who else would you like to hear in On The Go? Yeah, I think you should go and um, uh, pick people uh, from the different constituents. I think um, there's a, a couple of very interesting thinkers when it comes to the future of, of the city. So Transport of London is 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 one uh, company that I like because they control everything, right, from the street light to the tra- the the, uh, the taxi licenses, the roads, the the subways, and uh, um, I think it's a very interesting um, endeavor. I think you should definitely talk to the car OEMs, although I think uh, there will be different ones. I think uh, Volkswagen is a very interesting company because it is the biggest car company in the world today, like in mass automobility. And their answer will be very different to a BMW, which is in premium uh, individual mobility. Mm-hmm. And so Volkswagen has no choice to be to, to hide behind the premium strategy. So I think it's very interesting what they do. Toyota is similar. So I think, you know, cities, because we need to learn um, how they think, um, the the car OEMs, but then all the new mobility providers. I mean, all the, the parties we talked about today. Michael, it was a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for taking part in On The Go and for sharing your thoughts on the future of mobility. Pleasure. In the next episode of On The Go, we will be meeting with Dr. Irina Feige, who is head of the Institute for Mobility Research. Don't forget to subscribe to On The Go on iTunes or anywhere else where you listen to your podcasts. Have it? Yep. Well, did it well, Carl? Yeah, she did well. Yeah.